This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is MPB Season Pass on Think Radio with producer Liz Gill. I'm Jay White. Thanks so much for listening on this uh, Thursday morning. Got a good show for you today. Uh, a little bit later on, we'll hear uh, our uh, Liz Gill speaking with uh, Jackie Sherrill, uh, Mississippi Sports Hall of Famer, former Mississippi State football coach. It is the first week proper of uh, college football season, and uh, so it's uh, it's timely uh, to have a conversation with, uh, with him, uh, a very intriguing and interesting personality. Uh, and also, we'll learn about the world of autocross from driver and mechanic Allison Walker, who, as I mentioned, as I foreshadowed earlier, is going to have a much bigger role with MPB in the very near future. But first, I am I'm excited to have in the studio with us uh, Walter Reed, Dr. Reed, Dr. Walter Reed, former Jackson State University athletic director. He played at Jackson State in the 1950s as well uh, and did a whole bunch of other stuff also. I don't want to um, cut you short on, on your accomplishments, but um, the thing about your career that intrigues me the most is your your time as the athletic director at Jackson State, which was 77 to 88. That's correct. That is a really intriguing time in the history of JSU athletics, a really important time. Well, during that time, uh, we were our football team was under the, the leadership of Coach W.C. Gordon, and Coach Gordon had put together what I considered one of the better football coaching staffs in the country, and the performance of the team exemplified that due to the fact that there were not uh, – during – my tenure as athletic director, I think Coach Gordon might have lost as many as four games one season, but most time his record was eight and three, nine and two, ten and one, yeah. and stuff like that. And we uh, led the NCAA Division One AA in attendance uh, most of my eleven years that I was there, and we were real proud of that. We we thought that uh, when I left and and uh, that we had the program headed in the right direction. And I'm quite sure that uh, under the leadership of Coach Tony Hughes that we'll be coming back and and maybe sometime in the near future we'll be able to get back to that level whereby when we look out over the stadium there'll be 40 or 50,000 people in attendance. Yeah. Um, I, I, as recent, uh, a lot of people don't, realize this, but as late as 1997, Jackson State outdrew an average attendance, Mississippi State, Ole Miss, and Southern Miss, which is pretty remarkable. Well, see, during that time that uh, the, the, the influence of Coach Gordon was still on the staff because uh, when Coach Gordon stopped coaching, uh, Coach uh, James Carson took over, and that was just an a arm of Coach Gordon. And when Coach, Gordon, uh, Coach Carson's health failed, Coach Robert Hughes took over. And uh, Coach Hughes did an excellent job. His, I think his worst record might have been 7-4 and four yeah. or something like that during his tenure. And then the president of the university saw fit to, to make a change, he and the athletic director, and it didn't work out like like they anticipated no. it working out because uh, we kind of hit rock bottom during that time. And and uh, as you know, uh, when it comes to athletics, if you're not winning, they are not coming. Right. you got to be winning for the fans to come. And I'm hoping that Coach Hughes will get us back on the winning track. And if he get back to winning, the fans will come. And uh, I, I'm just looking forward to that day that I can look out over the stadium and see forty or 50,000 folks in there. And I think that day is coming because I think Coach Hughes, uh, Coach Hughes has put together a staff that will kind of cater to what fans like to see. Fans like to see offense. They don't care too much. They they put up with the defense, but they like to see offense. But all of us that's in coaching know that defense win games. That's right. right. That's right. So in in your tenure specifically, 
uh, part of what's intriguing to me is is the you you were the athletic director, and I don't know how much of this, but I assume you oversaw it to a large extent. JSU's uh, or the SWAC moved from the NAIA into the NCAA's Division One, uh, and so that had to be exciting. It, it, it was it was a big step for the conference because I was the athletic director when that happened, and uh, I guess most people re- know that we played in the first uh, 1AA playoff. We hosted Florida A&M here in our stadium, and what makes it so so memorable is that that was the coldest day that I have witnessed at a football game. Uh, at ice was if you standing on the sideline and didn't move, ice would get in your shoes. It was just a, raining and cold. Wow! But uh, it it helped Jackson State with it being visible. It helped us from a monetary point of view because then. Uh, Jack, when Jackson State and Grambling, uh, one of our members played on TV, they got the same money that all the other schools in the country got uh, uh, as it relates to being regional or uh, national play. Uh, it helped our conference treasure. It helped our athletic treasure. And it was just a great thing for athletics in the state of Mississippi and especially the SWAC conference. So in the in the eighties, well, in the seventies too, but there's there's a stretch through the eighties where I think Jackson State made the playoffs six times in a row, seven out of eight. As you mentioned, uh, you know they're routinely drawing on average thirty thirty five thousand, and right. for the big for the big games, the gates were fifties and sixties. They were filling the stadium up. That's correct. So there, there's there was always a lot of talk or I guess um, conversation about whether or not Jackson State should try to make the jump up to 1A. Uh, and and I know that you had to be part of a lot of conversations, and there's been a lot of strong opinion uh, in both directions. What was, what was, your, what was, your, what was your vision of, of all of that from where you well, sat? See, in order to uh, go to that division, you had to play a certain percentage of your game against Division One opponent. And the only way that, and at that time, the NCAA had an attendance clause and, uh, and, a, and a plan 1A opponent clause. Well, in order for us to make that move, we would have had to hopefully carry enough of our SWAC schools so we could still play the traditional schedule and and and, uh, and most of our SWAC schools did not meet the attendance clause, so therefore they were not eligible. So if we had gone and 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 and, and approached uh, being Division One, we would have had to take a lesser role in a major conference. And at that time, in order to be able to get into that major conference, you had to buy in. Mm-hmm. Uh, like the uh, Metro Conference with Louisville and Southern Mississippi and Mungham, the buy-in was a half a million dollars. Yeah, Jackson State didn't have a half a million dollars sure, yeah. to pay just to join a member of the conference because once you bought in, you got in their sharing formula. And if you notice back then, the Metro Conference was big in basketball. Right. So they got a, a nice share. So that's why you had to pay a half a million, and we couldn't do that. And But we did have a meeting one time where we were trying to convince enough of the his, this, our traditional rivals to go Division One. Mm-hmm. The, the NCA was coming up with a thing whereby they were going to cut scholarships that we could give in one AA, and we had a meeting at Jackson State University. We invited Gremlin, Southern, Jackson State, Florida A&M, Tennessee State, North Carolina A&T, and we invited all those schools in. Let's discuss us going Division One. But when that uh, the NCA withdrew that clause, we decided to stay where we were. Then, if you take a look at it, before the uh, Georgia and the rest of them sued the NCAA to get out of the guaranteed games for other schools, we were getting just as much money as the rest of them, so yeah, why? 
So that's a good point. What, yeah, but that was one of the reasons that uh, the buy-in was was more than Jackson State could afford, and we didn't have a half a million dollars that we could just write a check. Did a conference ever approach you about JSU joining? The conference never talked about uh, if we ever talked about anything. It was on a on a whole conference level. Yeah, we never wanted to be fragmented, and uh, there was a time that uh, when John David Crow was the athletic director at North Northeast Louisiana, he met with me and uh, a couple other athletic directors from the what I let me use my term from the lower level. Uh, 1A schools mm-hmm. about that, but see, he only he only wanted the top. He only wanted uh, Jackson State, Southern, and Grambling. He didn't want the other schools, and I thought that was going to be fragmenting us, and then I thought it would weaken our uh, influence within the uh, NCAA if we kind of went into that setting. And so we decided not to go in that setting, and that kind of died. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I think Jackson State is uh, uh, it has done well where they've been located uh, while I was there. I can't think we if I was there 11 years and we probably participated in seven or eight of the playoffs that were held as relates to one double A playoff. So long as we were getting in the playoff, we were at we were at the threshold of winning the national championship. And the Florida and M beat us that in 1978, and they went on to win the national yeah. championship. That's the only time a historically black school has won the, the, the they call it football division now, mm-hmm. the football division playoff. Do you wish that uh, the, the SWAC and the MEAC have – They've kind of foregone the playoffs now. They play a a bowl game with the two champions versus each other. uh, And that's kind of the cap of those two leagues' seasons. Do you wish that the SWAC champion would participate in the playoff these days? Well, we changed Jackson State and Alcorn. We changed our schedule to make our teams eligible for the playoff. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the financial rewards for the uh, Bayou Classic was so great that Grambling and Southern refused to change theirs so that <laughs> that, that would make our champions eligible for the playoff. Yeah. And with that being, and the playoff always start the, the day that the Bayou Classics is played. So therefore, we could not guarantee, and Jackson State was going into the playoff at large. Every, every year that we participated, we were an at-large team yeah. because the conference could not. The only team that's guaranteed uh, a playoff spot are those conferences that can guarantee their champions. And right now, we can't do that. Yeah. Um, at one point at JSU, uh, the, the, the coaches of your three most visible programs – uh, as you mentioned, W.C. Gordon earlier was a football coach. Bob Brady was the baseball coach. Paul Covington, Paul Covington was the basketball coach. Martin Those Epps track. Three pretty, of course, in the track, which won national championships, national championships in the NAIA. Right. Um, that's a that's a that's a pretty great crop of coaches all at one place at one time. <laughs> that's true. Uh, you tell people you put that, you had everything to do with that, that's, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> <laughs> so how how was that having all of those all of that wisdom uh, at and at the athletic grounds at the school at one time? See, I always operated uh, uh, whereby that I felt like that uh, I wanted people working with me. I don't like to use the term for me. I wanted people working with me that wanted my job. And I felt like that in order for them to uh, prove that they could handle my job, they had to be successful where they were located. (laughs) And as you know, along with them being successful, it made me successful. So we got along. It was a good group. It was one of the better coaching staffs that I've ever been affiliated with when you look at from bottom to top. And uh, 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 all of them were good men, hardworking persons who were dedicated to making sure that their program was the best that it could be. And all of them participated in NCAA playoffs uh, during my time, uh, uh, especially the, the uh, 
uh, that folk that that we just named. At that time, golf was was coming along because uh, that during my tenure, I had Eddie Payton. That's right. As my golf coach, and you know the rest of that is history. And uh, I hired Willie Shepard as my tennis coach, and uh, but Willie never did get in the NCAA. I think yeah, Willie got in the. He won the conference when the conference had the automatic uh, bid into the NCAA playoff. But some of the other sports, volleyball started kind of under my tenure. So, but we, it, I'm really proud of the, of the coaches at Jackson State, and uh, if you take a look at it. Uh, uh, most of my coaches are in Hall of Fames. Mm-hmm. They are in National Hall of Fames, you know. They have been recognized all over the country as, as being at the uh, at the top of their profession. What about the, the, the Williams Athletics and Assembly Center? What was your, your role in, in that building on campus? Well, the uh, it was it, the planning of it was started uh just prior to my coming in as mm-hmm. athletic director, but uh, when I came in in 1977, we were at the stage of where we were really getting down to the, the nuts and bolts. And uh, so I participated in the planning. I participated in the uh, all of the, the when it come to the building and and was I was hopeful I was helpful in getting it named after uh, a fellow that all of us thought a lot of, a lot of Dr. Uh, Lee Williams, and so I feel like that the athletics and assembly center at that time was what Jackson State needed. A lot of folks didn't know that the inside of that building is a half a football field, and when we built the building, we bought a track. Mm-hmm. Uh, into a track that we used to host track meets in there. So uh, then after I left, they I think they kind of slowed down on hosting track meets. And then along with that, the uh, state of Miss this Coliseum was hosting a, a track meet. And so uh, I think at that junction, Coach Epps kind of backed off having the track meet there, and he did just participate in the one that the uh, Coliseum would have. But I'm proud of the building. There are some things that if we had to do it over, I would probably take a look at it and do it a little different. Like what? And one of that is the seating. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think that the uh, – in trying to get a, a, a number of seats in, we might have put the seats too close together. So, therefore, it's, it's, it's not as comfortable as some of your indoor arenas should be yeah. as it relates to the seating. But uh, – I'm I'm proud of the building. It's it's been it was Coach Covington's opportunity to play his basketball games where he practiced with a what a lot of folks didn't know for a long time during Coach Covington's tenure. Uh, we played all our home basketball games in the Coliseum, mm-hmm. so therefore we had to play all our games prior to the rodeo coming into town. <laughs> so therefore, Coach Covington would play all of his games at home. And then during the month of uh, latter part of January and February, he was on the road, which put him at a distinct disadvantage. But with the uh, similar center, that gave him that opportunity to play a balanced schedule. If I can ask you quickly, uh, JSU and Southern Miss are playing this weekend. You set up a game between JSU and Southern Miss in 1987. Yes, sir. And uh, I'm I'm supposing that's the first game between – It was. The first football game between one of the SWAC schools and one of the the so-called the the big three. The the historical implication of that football game is it was the first football game that a Division I-AA school and a Division I school within the same state played. That's, that's the historical implication. You say, well, Florida and m played Miami prior to that. Miami's private. Yeah. They are not state. Grambling played Oregon. They are not in the same state. Yeah. But if you look at that and within the same state, that's the historical implication that that happened. Uh, 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 Coach Roland Dale and I started discussing that under the uh, prodding of Rick Cleveland. 
started discussing wow. uh, playing the game because at that time, if you can remember, Southern Mississippi was drawing half of what we were drawing. Oh, yeah. And Rick kept saying if Southern want to fill the stadium, they need to play Jackson State. And uh, if you go to the Sports Hall of Fame now and look under my kiosk, you'll see uh, when we played the game, a sign on the ticket booth that says sold out. Yeah. How about that? That's right. That was a that was a sold out. That was the first. Let me tell you something unique about that football game. When people were getting ready to go to the ball game, they would uh, carpooling. And if you came out of your house and didn't have on some blue and white, they sent you back in the house. <laughs> the only way you could ride in their car, you had to have on blue and white if you were going to that game. And it, it, it was a great day for football in America, let me use that term. It was a great day for football, and I think we proved that day that our Coach Gordon's team could compete against basically anybody because Southern Mississippi was beating up on schools in the SEC during yeah. that time. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, that, that, that's, that's amazing to think about. And, uh, you know, they're teasing putting that red back in there. I don't know. Jackson State putting the red back in their, their color scheme. Well, our colors are, are navy blue and white. Okay. i just leave it at that. Uh, okay, I like, I like that. That's very diplomatic of you. Yeah. Um, uh, Dr. Reed, thank you so much for coming in and talking to us. It's, it's great coming in, and anytime you feel like I can be of assistance, just let me know. I'm, right now I'm retired, uh, enjoying retirement and willing to help in any way that I can. Absolutely. And wearing that JSU polo right now, ready for game weekend. Okay. All right. We'll take a break. When we come back, we'll hear our conversation uh, that Liz Gill had with uh, Coach Jackie Sherrill, former Mississippi State coach and Mississippi Sports Hall of Famer. That's after this break. This is MPB Season Pass on Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back to MPB Season Pass. I'm Liz Gill with host Jay White. As it happens, sometimes we, some of our interviewees aren't available to bring to you live during the show, so we call them and talk to them uh, a day or so ahead of time. And sometimes we just get to talking and it just goes on, and we have more information than we can bring to you in just a segment of the show. So this is one of the cases. I had a dream interview with Coach Jackie Sherrill, Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame member, uh, Biloxi High School football player, coach at the University of Mississippi, was just a, a sliver of his entire career. His interview was so interesting, so intriguing, and completely changed the way I thought about him as a person. Uh, but we just don't have the time to bring it all to you. So here's a little bit of my recent conversation with Coach Jackie Sherrill. As a as a mom and a spectator, I think about recruiting from you know the player side of the equation. How did you go about recruiting players for your teams? My judge on kids uh, character was very simple. I never recruited a kid that I didn't see him in front of his mother. Because if, if his action in front of his mother was one of respect and honor, then he would respect and honor what he was supposed to do in college. If he did not respect his, or honor his mother, then there's no way that he was going to respect me or any of the coaches. And I turned down a lot of kids when they showed any disrespect to their mother. You played football 
at the University of Alabama under Bear Bryant from 1962 to 1965. And at that time, um, that was an all-white team. But as you became a graduate assistant and an assistant coach, did you ever run into any problems when the teams uh, became integrated, or did you need to? And again, I don't, I don't think that I was that smart, but I, I pride myself that every player was a player. You know, people have a misconception when they say, "Well, we played for Alabama, or we played for Mississippi State, or we played for Notre Dame." To the players, you're playing for your teammates in the locker room on the field. It's the same thing as in a foxhole. It doesn't matter what your color, or religion, or I mean, you're you're fighting for your your guys in that foxhole. And that's, it's hard for somebody to sometimes understand it. People ask me all the time, you know, where would where your best stop? And I said, it's not about stops. It's about the players. And I was fortunate at every stop to have, you know, great players and have relationships with all the players. Now, they certainly didn't like me every day. And I would <laughs> tell the players, you're not going to like me every day, and that bad gum sure not going to like you all the time either. And, you know, Coach Bryant didn't like us every day. We certainly didn't like Coach Bryant. <laughs> <laughs> you talk about, uh, you know, uh, your players. When you have standout players like uh, Tony Dorsett or Dan Marino, is it different? Yeah, we had, we had plenty of that Mississippi State. Right. Yeah. Is it different coaching a team that has a star rather than, you know, everybody all pulls together? Is there, is there any kind of different coaching? No. What I found out, every one of my best players were very respected, very well liked by all the other players. But they also were the hardest practice players. And they were the hardest players during the game. There's a reason they earned that respect. And, you know, yesterday was Keeper McGee's uh, day that he passed away or years ago. I want to say 27. No, it's not that many. But anyway, uh, Keeper was probably the best player I ever had on and off the field. He graduated in three and a half years. Uh, He never went to a bar. He never drank. He never said a cuss word. But on the football field, he was the best that we had. And during practice, and uh, he was the best. And when he came into the locker room, I remember telling our team one day, I said, we're going to do a squad committee. And, you know, so I put the names on the board of the kids or players that would be on the squad committee. And so we're going out to practice, and Keeper runs up to me and says, Coach, I don't want to be on the squad committee. And I look at him and I said, what are you saying? He said, Coach, you're not going to do what we want anyway, so why are we having a squad committee? Well, he was smart enough to know that he was probably true. (laughs) So (laughs) I didn't have a squad committee. One way you changed up, I guess you'd say, um, team interaction was with the 12th Man Program at the Texas A&M. How did all that happen? I wish I could take credit for that of being that smart. <laughs> but, you know, it was the probably the one of the best things I ever did at Texas A&M was bringing the student body on the field because it started all the way back in 1922. They were playing in the Dixie Classic, Texas A&M. Right. It's the Cotton Bowl now, and they were running out of players. 
and they had a football and basketball player by the name of Keen Gill. He was in the press box body with for the radio, and uh, they, the coach asked him to come down. He came down. He got dressed under the stadium and stood on the sideline, and from that day on, every student stands for the whole game at Texas A&M. Right. Which it means we're we're standing tall and to be ready if if needed. Mm-hmm. And so when I did the 12th man kickoff team, I took kids out of the student body and they became the kickoff guys. And they were really good for five years. They were number always number in the top five. In a couple of years, they were number one. Their average was twelve point five. Today, if you got a twenty-five less yard average on the kickoff coverage, you're good. They never had a kickoff past the 46-yard line, and the, they only had one outside the 30-yard line, and that was Bo Jackson, the, <laughs> the 46. Uh-huh. Bear Bryant is your coach. Uh, tell us something about how he influenced your coaching. Well, you ask about Coach Bryant. Uh, my freshman year, there were 86 uh, that showed up for the first day of practice. And that was back when we had had a lot. You, know, you could sign 90 in two years, 45 or 50, or and it would vice versa. But a combination of 90 for two years. And when we were seniors, there were only I think seven of us. Uh, and there were four red shirts, I think, but there were only seven seniors that were that came in that freshman class. We had the smallest senior class ever at Alabama, but we were good enough to win the championship two years in a row. Mm-hmm. Are you still in touch with any of them? Oh yes, all the time. That's wonderful. You know, I'm fortunate because. Uh, you know, after, you know, none of us ever remember anybody uh, that was a coach or a teacher that was nice to you. <laughs> we only remember that coach or that teacher that made us do things we didn't want to do and helped us accomplish things we didn't think we could accomplish. So when those players cussed me years ago and didn't like me, uh, now they not only like me, you know, they love because uh, they are experiencing an awful lot of things in doing things that I did when they were young. Well, Coach Cheryl, we really appreciate you speaking with us on MPB Season Pass. It's just been an honor to speak with you. I appreciate it in Hell State. <laughs> it was so fascinating to get to speak with uh, Coach Jackie Sherrill, Mississippi Sports Hall of Fame inductee, former coach at uh, Mississippi State University. When we come back, we're going to learn about the sport of autocross with a MPV Think Radio guest who's been on Fix It 101, Allison Walker. I'm Liz Gill with host Jay White. We'll be right back. You're listening to MPB's Season Pass on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. (laughs) 
You're listening to MPB Season Pass. I'm Liz Gill here with Jay White. Now, we realize you might not be able to listen to the show in its entirety. So if you want to go back and listen to a show at your convenience, you need to download or stream our podcast on whatever platform you receive podcasts. You can also go to our website, mpbonline.org slash season pass. So now I'd like to welcome to the show Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic. MPB listeners may know her as a guest expert on our Wednesday 9 a.m. show, Fix It 101. Allison is a mechanic and an autocross participant. So thanks for coming on the show, Allison. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, this is Motorsports Awareness Month. I know because I look up silly holidays every day. (laughs) And we'd like to make our listeners aware of autocross. Um, It's not an oval motor race. So give our listeners a picture of what an autocross course looks like. Okay. Well, basically what they do is set up turns in a pattern where you'll have curves and turns and you have a slalom where you go in and out through the cones. There's always a slalom in there. And so basically, you're going to go as fast as you can through those cones, and you're timed yourself. So you're, you're running against yourself to get the fastest time you can, and you get really about six runs within a day to get your fastest time. So that's how uh, the competition is scored? Uh, that's who, how they determine the winner is the time? Yes, and then that's broken up to classes depending on how your car been modified. Do you get uh, penalty times if you run over a cone or something? Yes, you do. It adds a second to it for a cone. So for folks who have never done a motorsport but have uh, have days of thunder dreams or something, how hard is it to pick up this as a sport? Um, th- this sport is awesome because it is very welcoming to beginners and people who do not have modified cars. There are people out there running four-door Honda Accords straight off the dealership lot. Um, so you can, t- you can bring a car that doesn't have anything done to it and, and go. You never go that fast. You usually don't get out of second gear, so it's easy for anyone at a beginner level. This isn't a road course. It's just cones set up in a airport is what we use. We use the airport in Grenada, Mississippi, and we use the Air Force Base in Columbus, the back side of their airport. So it's just a big, flat area. This is not a road course like you would see Le Mans or something like that. It's, it's not on that level. You don't go that fast. Uh, does anybody ever use their regular street car, or do you usually use a special autocross car? People use their regular everyday cars all the time. That's the majority of the people that race. Awesome. So what are some of the skills that an autocross uh, participant would make use of? What would be a good? What's a good skill set? Um, learning to go through the cone smoothly and know where your angles are, like if you're turning at a certain point, you need to know when you need to start turning. And those little pieces are the things you pick up as you go through and learn how to, what I call it, is dancing through the cone. <laughs> I like that term. <laughs> yeah. So you've mentioned uh, Grenada and Columbus. Tell us about your experience with the sport. So they've been doing it in Grenada and Columbus since the 70s. So we have people that are still racing from since it started in Mississippi, and our chapter got started. Occasionally, we'll do one at the uh, Jackson Coliseum, but not nearly as often that we use the other two places all the time. Is there a, a club or a, a governing body that sets up these events? Yes, the Mississippi Region Sports Car Club of America is the one for Mississippi. And you can find it on Facebook. It's MS Region SCCA. So it is the Sports Car Club of America, SCCA, which hosts all kinds of different race car events. But we do just the autocross here in Mississippi. They have road racing and I think some off-road rally-style cross that they do in places like Arkansas, where you, where you have places to do that kind of thing, so, you know, other forms of racing. But here in Mississippi, the autocross is what we do here. All right. Well, we'll have a link to that 
on our website. Do they ever have stands or or uh, like uh, uh, what what do they do? Deer stands or something where you get a little elevation, or is mostly everybody just kind of on the side? Can you have spectators? It's really not a spectator sport. Uh huh. Um, if you're able to have a friend or someone you can ride with while they race or you're racing yourself. But as far as standing out there in the broad sunlight and watching the cars, you can't really see the action that well unless you're involved. The bigger events that are held across America, um, some of them have the facilities for that and are set up for spectators for It's just um, small. It's a, it's a small setup and it, we do want to grow the participation in it, but it like wait, it's not. It doesn't have stands where you can really see what's going on. You have to get hands in. You got to drive. You got to you got to get involved with this one. I would think as a participant, getting a bird's eye view of yourself would be so helpful because you'd be able to see how you're taking the line or what your you know what your strategy is on doing slaloms or something. It would be so helpful. You you can't really stand on the edges and videotape it. And when you're inside the grid, you know, you stand. We've set up people at different sections of the the grid, too, or the course to pick up cones as they get knocked over. You're not allowed to have a phone when you're out there. So, yeah, it's hard to tell what you're doing. Now, what a lot of people do is they have the cameras on their car. They're stuck to the sides of the car. They're stuck behind the seat where they can see. And so they'll go through, and that helps them learn what angles to get better and where to improve and that sort of thing. So that's that's something, the GoPros and everything. What has brought you joy? What have you in, uh, brought excitement? Or wh- why have you chosen this as a motorsport to participate in? I have a need for speed problem <laughs> um, that's pretty vicious. And uh, and I've always had it my whole life. If I wasn't racing my on my feet, I was racing horses. And just, it, it just got bigger and bigger to, to where I, I wanted to stop at with autocross. I wouldn't mind doing something as big as road racing one day. I wouldn't be against it at all and be would love the opportunity but this is something that you can do on a budget so you don't have to spend a whole lot of money and it's accessible and everyone is super super nice and very very helpful i've gotten to ride with people and learn and i don't know how available that would be you know on other racing like drag racing and these things like that so it's, it's just a very accessible way to race and get that adrenaline rush out of your system <laughs> it's very relaxing in that way but of course while you're racing your hands are shaking and it's it's a thrill it's a big big thrill well we will have a link to the club on our website so folks can uh, check it out if they're interested but another reason that we have you on as a guest today is that you have a new opportunity coming for you with MPB tell our listeners about it yes very very exciting um after the success of the multiple times that I had come on on the Fix-It show as an automotive person, expert, um, the, those shows went really well. So we were talking about doing a show a long time ago. And so we finally made it possible. So we have a automotive show, exclusively automotive, automotive topic called AutoCorrect. And the first airing will be September 13th at 10 a.m. I'm a co-host on that show. I'm very excited about that. And I'm the other co-host. <laughs> yeah. So it'll be during this time slot, folks, 10 a.m. Thursdays on MPB Think Radio, beginning on September 13th. Let's take just a little bit more, Allison, to let our listeners uh, get to know you. When did you first become interested in cars? I would honestly say it's, it's kind of hard to explain, but my mom was driving an awesome muscle car, a Grand Torino, when I was when I was in her stomach, and I'm pretty sure she wasn't driving slow. Um, <laughs> and then <laughs> when she had me and was in the hospital, she didn't have a name for me yet, and she was watching NASCAR, and Bobby Allison was racing, and she thought Allison sounds like a lovely name. So I got named after Bobby Allison from NASCAR. 
from the time I was born, I was constantly going 90 to nothing, whether it was my big wheel, my bike, my feet. And then once I started riding horses, I was always going so fast. And my grandmother was always getting on to me going, you just go 90 to nothing everywhere. And I remember thinking, I don't have time to even talk about that. I got to go. <laughs> and so I've always just had this need for speed, which bred my love of sports cars. But it was just cars in general. I remember being a little girl and asking people, of all things, I asked about what's the gas mileage on this car <laughs> and what size engine does it have and how, how do you, what do you think about your car? Does it brake good? Is it fast? You know, just, I would just ask all my friends' parents these ridiculous questions about just the average everyday cars like Camrys and stuff. And it just never stopped. I ended up getting subscriptions to car magazines, Car and Driver, Motor Trend, Automobile. I had all those car magazines when I was in junior high, I think is when I started doing that, and just piles of them. And then I got my first sports car when I was, I think I was um, 19 or 20, and really started putting the pedal to the metal then and building up driving skills. Just from the beginning, right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, yep. (laughs) Allison, um, uh, you'll help our listeners when they call in, uh, you know, diagnose or give them the ability to uh, to, to seek further help on uh, correcting their auto problems. The thing about automotive is there's always just something you've never heard of happening on a car. And you're like, wow, okay. And then, you know, you work through the problem and fix it. Thanks for being a guest on our show, Allison Walker, the lady auto mechanic. <laughs> Absolutely. You can follow me on Facebook and Instagram, the lady auto mechanic, and I've got a Snapchat, the lady auto mechanic. Check me out there. Fantastic. And we'll have links to that on this show, too. So we're about to take our last break of the show. When we come back, we'll talk about what's going on in sports this weekend. You're listening to MPB Season Pass on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Welcome back. This is MPB Season Pass on Think Radio with producer Liz Gill. I'm Jay White. Thank you so much for listening. Liz, you wanted to say something about that interview with Coach Cheryl? Yes. I wanted everyone to know that at the beginning of the interview, I had lost my ever-loving mind, and I said that Jackie (laughs) Cheryl coached at the University of Mississippi when, of course, everyone knows he coached at Mississippi State and uh, won 75 games over 13 seasons. Yeah, it's interesting for the high of the highs that he experienced there. I think his last record was like exactly 500, like 75, 75 and five or three or something like that. So uh, but um, he is a he is a historical figure in SEC football lore here in the state of Mississippi, Um, Mississippi. SEC football had fallen on some really hard times. Uh, and Billy Brewer had done some work at at Ole Miss and had shown them that they can that they could do it, that it's not a foregone conclusion, that they actually can stand in there and swing. I mean, they still don't have to a certain extent. Uh, the the resources that a Georgia or an LSU or an Alabama or an Auburn or a Tennessee or a Florida have. But they could stand in there and swing toe to toe player versus player with uh, those bigger schools. And then when Jackie Sherrill comes along at Mississippi State and, you know, they kind of go into that Egg Bowl rivalry that spilled over into the papers and everything else, and they move the game. Uh, for for me, a Jacksonian as a kid, uh, out of Mississippi Veterans Memorial Stadium, unfortunately, but uh, for the sake of the rivalry, back onto campus at uh, Scott Field at that time and Vaught-Hemingway Stadium, uh, that – it just reinvigorated reinvigorated the rivalry, and um, it, it planted the seed for what you have today, which is uh, the, the the two schools that 
you know, are as much a viable part of the SEC as just about anybody. Well, my uh, association with him was that I was a student at the University of Texas when he <laughs> was the coach at uh, Texas A&M. And uh, when you do go to attend an institution of higher learning that has a rival, uh, <laughs> possibly within state, uh, uh, you you develop extremely strong and passionate feelings <laughs> about uh, those rivals and maybe their head coach. And speaking with him, it was just so lovely. Uh, I got a chance to hear a little bit more about how he would take those high passions that he inspired in the rivals and, uh, you know, work with it. Bring it on. Uh, if it if if what he called you or what he did bothered you as a rival, then that was all the more good for him and his teams. Absolutely, and he was um, he was really well. I mean, his entire career uh, was spent galvanizing. Um, I don't want to say galvanizing. The one, I don't know the, the terminology to put it without it sounding disrespectful. Um, you know, Penn State was the big school in Pennsylvania, of course. He coached at Pittsburgh. Uh, and, and he galvanized that fan base and put that football program on the map uh, in the face of Joe Paterno and Penn State at Texas A&M. Um, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the arch nemesis of, as you mentioned, the University of Texas. Uh, which is it's a mighty that's a mighty strong fortress to run up against, and uh, he galvanized the folks at Texas A and M and put that football program back on the map. Same thing with Mississippi State. Ole Miss had been the football traditional powerhouse for years and years and years, and he took the state university and ran up against the University of Mississippi and and galvanized their their fan base and reestablished that football program and even coached a year at Washington State one single season uh, to begin his his career um, it, it kind of doesn't fit in the same mold and him only being there for one year that was kind of strange but um, yeah he's he was he was pretty remarkable and as we're talking about rivalries everybody in Jackson needs to be careful this weekend because those bitter rivals Bellhaven and Millsaps are starting their football season on Saturday night that's right it's um, I don't know if they call it the Riverside Rumble anymore. They did for a while there. Uh, although they are they play in two smaller classifications of uh, college football. I've had a chance to go to a couple of these games. It is, it is one of the most fun experiences that I've ever had in college football, including all of the big stadiums and schools that I've been to. The schools are a par five golf hole from one another. And it's one of the few games in all of college football where fans and students of both schools can literally walk comfortably uh, to the game, regardless of which campus it's on or as it was at Newell Field uh, on the campus of uh, uh, Bailey High School for a long time. So that that's a lot of fun and uh, good for both of those uh, schools for having that game. All right, that's going to do it for us. We will be back next Thursday at 10 for MPB Season Pass on Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.